Hi, I'm Father Chris Alar of the Marian Fathers here at the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy, and thank you for joining us here on EWTN for Living Divine Mercy. One of the great men of the church that you've probably never heard of, but is the reason we still exist as a religious community, we the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception, is because of Blessed George Machilitis. He is our renovator when our community went down to one person. So let's hear now as Father Thaddeus Langton tells us a little bit more about this blessed in the church who is a great man of faith and divine mercy. Thank you, Father Chris. I'm Father Thaddeus. Today I have the privilege to talk about our renovator, Blessed George Matulaitis Matulevich. He was born in Lugina, Lithuania in 1871, a very small town to very poor peasants. And actually, Blessed George lost his parents, both his parents, by the time that he was 10 years old. And even though he came from a small town, he made a great impact upon the church, upon the world, and especially upon us as Marians, because most of you probably know of him because he basically saved us. In 1909, he entered what then was the Congregation of the Marian Fathers with only one priest left. And after he entered and professed his vows, we then were renovated, we were renewed, and now we've grown back to about 500 priests and brothers throughout the world. But who is this man? Who is this priest, this bishop, and even this archbishop? As I said, he grew up in very humble beginnings, lost his parents, and then through help of other relatives was able to study towards the priesthood. And he eventually made his way to the Diocese of Kielce, where he belonged when he was first ordained a priest. Then he taught in Warsaw. But soon after, he fell ill. He had tuberculosis of the bone. And he wound up actually in a hospital, almost abandoned, until a noble woman was able to pay for his medicine. And he recuperated, thanks be to God. But then he became a professor after some time in what used to be Leningrad in St. Petersburg, Russia. And he taught various different courses, church history, but especially his favorite was on the social doctrine of the church. Because he saw during that time, we know that that was the time right before the Russian Revolution that embraced communism and then spread communism throughout the world. He was very intensely focused upon help for the poor and especially as a church. He understood that if the church did not act upon these current social issues, then people would understandably seek other solutions. Solutions that seemed to promise success and relief for their poverty, but as we know all too well today, only increased their problems and their pain and created even more persecution for the church. Now, from all accounts, Blessed George was a young, successful priest. He had originally been assigned as a professor in the seminary in Warsaw, and despite his bout with illness, was well understood and esteemed by his fellow professors in St. Petersburg. In fact, his students were not only the seminarians, other professors would come to listen to him as well. And he had a gift for languages. He knew Russian because even though he grew up in Lithuania and spoke Lithuanian from his parents, he was forced to learn Russian as a kid, but also because he spent time in Fribourg, Switzerland, where he got his doctorate in theology, he had learned French, German, and other languages as well. So what do you do when you're a man who's 
doing this much and this well esteemed by others? Well, he understood that he should dedicate his life even more to Christ and in service of the church, which is why I mentioned in 1909, he entered the Marians of the Immaculate Conception, which is no small thing because he had the esteem, he had prestige, he had that fact of being well-renowned by others, but he left it to enter what then was a dying congregation. And why would he do this? Well, there are various reasons. The first is that he had grown up at a parish where one of the Marian generals had actually baptized him and catechized him. So his own family roots was connected to the Marians of the Immaculate Conception. But then secondly, when he was ill, he had prayed to Our Lady that if he was saved from this tuberculosis of the bone, that he would save the Marians and so renew them, which he followed up on. So in 1909, he entered and Father Bucis, who later became a bishop as well, entered as the first man in the novitiate. So in 1910, the renovation of the Marians was underway, but totally clandestine and totally secret because the czarist government at the time was pretty strong. Since 1864, the Marians hadn't been permitted to let anyone enter the congregation, nor anyone to be able to do active pastoral ministry. And so the Marians were literally dying out. And Blessed George understood we had to take drastic measures. And so it was a totally secret novitiate. It was simply in his apartment, in fact, that he led this novitiate. Later, he moved it to Freiburg, Switzerland, because the Tsarist government upped the ante, and they actually sent the secret police to search into apartments and other homes because they understood that Catholics were having secret religious organizations. And Blessed George, over time, started to have many priests enter, priests who were fellow professors in St. Petersburg, as well as others who heard about him. Now, that those news about him, his personality, and his holiness not only reached other priests, but soon enough, later in that very decade, it reached Rome. And so Pope Benedict XV, despite Blessed George actually protesting in many letters that we have today, no, 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 you should make me a bishop. I've got other things to do. You've got the wrong person. There's another letter in which he says, it's done. God's will is done. And he surrenders. And so he was made Bishop of Vilnius. And we understand today Vilnius as the capital of Lithuania, which it is. But in this time, Lithuania didn't exist in the same way we understand it today. In fact, Vilnius still belonged to Poland. And so when we talk about St. Faustina and her own time in Vilnius, actually she was still in Poland during that time. So Blessed George had a tremendous problem on his hands. He was a bishop of a city and an area that went, underwent six different governments while he was bishop. And he wasn't bishop very long. If my dates serve me well, he was bishop from 1919 to 1925 when he resigned after Concordat was signed between Poland and the Holy See. And during that time, he had to deal with Lithuanians who wanted their own country, Poles who claimed Vilnius because the majority of the population in Vilnius was Polish. Then you dealt with the Bolsheviks who wanted communism and Jews who wanted their own government as well. And so Blessed George chose as his Episcopal motto, conquer evil with good. And he leaves a wonderful legacy in what's called his journal. 
There are different versions of it. Sometimes you hear about his spiritual journal, which is largely the first about 50 pages, which is largely on spiritual matters. But the other pages don't lack spiritual matters. They just include all the headaches he had to deal with as a bishop. In fact, one of the things and the reason I'm almost laughing is because he had to deal with priests, I kid you not, this is how turbulent the time was, wanted permission to put turrets with rifles in their belfries where they had their bells and their bell, bell towers. I can't imagine getting a request like that. And yet this is the kind of people he had to deal with. Not only lay people wanting political agitation, but he had to deal with priests asking these kinds of things. And so he became well known, as is evidenced in his journal, as a man of peace. And in fact, he writes about that in the journal, how to maintain the peace of Christ. And his favorite Bible verse is that the Spirit of God is not found in turbulence. It's not found in commotion. And he tried his best to maintain a deep spiritual life. He understood both as a priest, but also as a religious, as the superior general of the renovated Marians, that having a spiritual life was of paramount importance, that everything begins to dry up, even if you have the best of plans and the best of apostolates. But if you don't have a solid structure, if your roots aren't deeply into the soil of the word of God, then nothing will last. So he was a man who would wake up quite early to pray, and he was known, in fact, to have a schedule where he would pray in each hour and offer up his work for different intentions after the example of St. Francis Borgia. But he makes clear in his journal that he wants to imitate Jesus not only in his fasting, not only in his vigils, not only in his prayer, but above all in his fatigue, in his labor, and in his love for the bride of the church. And that's what we see in Blessed George. We see a man who's able to understand what St. Stanislaus had originally intended with the Marians of the Immaculate Conception because St. Stanislaus was actually a Pierist before he founded the Marians, and the Pierists were a very active community. Actually, they're still around today. They found schools, and so they're active all day. And St. Stanislaus was forced by the bishop to have an eremitical status, to pray and to fast much more than he probably ever intended. So blessed Georges that were unlocked, many of the things that our founder had originally wanted but weren't permitted because of divine providence working through bishops and authorities in the church. So blessed George put all of his devotion to Mary, to the Immaculata, as his desire to clean, cleanse and to clean the church, which is why one of his famous lines in his journal is, Lord, use me like a dish rag. He says, use me to clean the littlest corner in your church, and then when you've used me, you can chuck me away, which can sound a little demeaning. But Blessed George understood that his mission in Vilnius was precisely that. It was a little corner, not terribly important at the time, like Paris would be, being Archbishop of Paris. But the Lord had that picked for him so he could cleanse and purify that little corner of the church. And that's where in Catholic theology we talk about the connection between our love for Mary and our love for the church. Because the more devoted we are to Mary and her being immaculate, spotless, and stainless, the more we should also be devoted, like Blessed George, to making the church, the living stones of the church, also pure, spotless, and stainless. And that's not always pretty. <laughs> That's pretty difficult, in fact. And so Blessed George lived to the full, the oblatio, the self-offering of St. Stanislaus, of letting himself, as Blessed George says in one of his prayers, be consumed like a candle on the altar or like grains of incense before the Lord. 
And there's another beautiful prayer of Blessed George where he says, Lord Jesus, let me love you more and more each day and send me where the need is the greatest, which is what the Lord did. And even with all of these duties, Blessed George always maintained his love for the poor. He always had this spirit of peace. He listened to everybody and never showed partiality. And he particularly loved his enemies. And so he lived to the full his Episcopal motto, conquer evil with good. And so I would encourage you, turn to him. He still needs a miracle for his canonization, but also for all of your problems. Where evil seems too big to be conquered, turn to blessed George and let him teach you how through little acts of goodness, you can conquer all the evil we face in this world. Thank you. Back to you, Father Chris. Well, thank you, Father Thaddeus, for that great description of the importance of Blessed George. Now, many of you have often heard me talk about my old parish, St. Mark's in Huntersville, North Carolina, as the place where I really found my vocation to the priesthood. Well, one of the priests at part of the time that I was there was Father Timothy Reed, a man that I respect greatly and a man who, like Blessed George, had no idea what God had in store for him. Because baptism is the doorway by which we enter into the church. We become Christians by being baptized. What I've learned over the years is that the priesthood is a very special gift that God gives. That vocations to the priesthood are uh, very special, unique, but at times fragile things. There are many ways that God chooses to reveal his plan for our lives. Some are subtle, in solitary thoughts, in soft whispers, in unexpected coincidences. But sometimes the subtle approach isn't working. And so it was with one Timothy Reed. I grew up Methodist, converted to Catholicism in my senior year of college. And soon after I, I became a Catholic, I, I felt that tug that God was asking me to become a priest, but it's not something that I wanted. I had a job lined up and I wanted to get married, I wanted to have kids, wanted to work out in the world. And so I basically said no to God. No, I, I don't want to be a priest. There was a parish mission going on uh, at the parish that I settled into in Indianapolis. And I went, I, I knew who the priest was. I had heard him speak before. And as he, he got to the end of his talk, he, he made mention of that, how every time he does a mission, he does an altar call, where he asks all the young men and women there who believe they have a, uh, a vocation to the priesthood or religious life to come forward so that he can pray with them. And the minute he said it, I felt a certain pain just grip my heart. And I watched young men and women were going up, uh, you know, to the edge of the altar, and I couldn't go. Well, after a few minutes, he, he stopped and he looked around and he said, not everybody's up here. There's a young man here tonight who's denying his call to the priesthood. And then he said, you know who you are because you can feel the pain in your heart. And I just gripped the pew in front of me and said, no, I'm not going. There was gonna be a little adoration and a Eucharistic procession. So they, they bring out uh, the monstrance with the host. And as he's doing the procession, he's walking down the main aisle. As father walks by me, all of a sudden his arms jerk over so that 
I'm looking right at the monstrance and he, he pulls the monstrance out of the way and he says, you're the one being called to the priesthood. And I said, yes, Father. That night I went home and prayed and I sort of threw down the gauntlet with God. I said, listen, I don't want this. I do not want to be a priest. If you want me to be a priest, then you need to change my heart. And um, the next morning I woke up and I had a big, dumb smile on my face. And the first thought that crossed my mind was, I want to be a priest. I want to be a priest. He, and he changed my heart overnight. It's now some 30 years later, and Father Tim is the pastor of St. Anne's Catholic Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Mindful of his own calling to the priesthood, helping young men discern if they're called as well is one of his passions. What we've tried to create at St. Anne's is simply a seedbed where uh, vocations to the priesthood and religious life can be fostered and seem just a natural part of the church. And I made a promise to God when I got there that I would try to make the parish as authentically Catholic as possible. I wanted the Catholic faith and all of her rich traditions and patrimony to, to breathe freely in the parish. When I got there, we had a mix of boys and girls serving at the altar. So I thought, all right, well, we're gonna change this. And if we're going to um, really help boys discern vocations to the priesthood, they need to do it at the altar. What we did was I just stopped recruiting any girls. I created a new ministry for the girls, uh, the St. Maria uh, Junior Altar Guild, so they would still have a role with the Mass. The number of servers after the girls quit and new boys came on doubled. And then I learned something. I thought, okay, priesthood is a masculine role. This is a role for men. Altar boys are a step in that direction, and we need to give these boys an authentically masculine experience at the altar. Boys jump at it. Uh, they, they do. Now, it can be a little bit like the Lord of the Flies before Mass, you know, in the, in the sacristy as guys are jostling for their jobs. But I think that's a good thing. In Father Reed's goal of making St. Anne's a seedbed, currently nine young men from the parish are studying for the priesthood. An amazing number. Theodore is one of them. And his discernment might be nearly as remarkable as Father Tim's. For at one time, he not only claimed to be an atheist, he claimed to be a militant atheist, but he was searching for something. And I just kind of realized, like, I think I need religion because if I don't have that, there's no meaning in my life whatsoever. Like, nothing matters. And like I said, it wasn't comfortable <laughs> for an atheist to admit that. Then, in time, he found the church. And one day, he prayed for guidance. I kind of had a, <laughs> a little push one day. Um, I would always go to pray a rosary after my RCA classes in our chapel at St. Anne's. I went to pray, and uh, in front of me there's a little booklet about um, praying the rosary for our priests. You know, in the first joyful mystery, we pray for all those young men who are called to the priesthood that they would have the strength to respond to that call. And I kind of stopped like, uh, <laughs> hold on, is that talking about me? Like, what? Um, I actually stopped for a second and looked at the tabernacle. I was like, are you talking to me, Lord? It's like you have this you know, sort of rickety rope bridge in front of you, and you take like one step on it and it doesn't give way, so you go, okay, and you take one more step and one more step, just carefully going across this bridge, 
and it just holds up. You just keep going across this bridge one step at a time. My coming into the church, it was just very slow, very gradual, but very positive the whole way there. And to see so many, um, so many seminarians coming in, especially young ones, it, some of them are right out of high school even, with that trust in God, with that desire to serve others, it's, it's very encouraging and hopeful for the future of the diocese. But it's not just young seminarians who have discovered a newfound adherence to the traditional approach of St. Anne's. It's a message that has revitalized a whole new generation. I think that norm, that belief that the traditional approach is a turnoff to the young, I think it's false. I think young people actually want something that's more solid and traditional. I think that they find real solace in the solidity of faith that they find there. So many times our discernment comes in those ways, you know, just taking practical steps. And so what's been the upshot? We've taken this approach for 16 and a half years. When I got there, the average age was 46. Now the average age is 29. Hey, how are you? Hi guys. In the last year, we've baptized 145 babies out of 925 families. We have kids everywhere. If I've been successful, it's simply because I've tried to do what God's asked of me. It's been very clear to me that my story is meant to be assigned to others, to remind others that there is a supernatural world, just to remind them that, yes, God is there and occasionally, God does work in an extraordinary way. Well, thank you, Father Timothy, and God bless you and everybody in my old diocese of Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, let's talk to one of our newest ordained priests, Father Jason Lewis, my great friend and an amazing priest who's going to tell you a little bit about his vocation story as well. I had kind of a surreal experience when I woke up in the morning and I realized that I'm a priest and I have Jesus Christ marking me. Now I knew that already the day of ordination, of course, but I looked down and I looked at my hands, grateful to the Lord God for giving me the gift of his priesthood, knowing that Jesus Christ, the high priest, has made his mark in my soul permanently. As we know, you are a priest forever and a priest according to the line of Melchizedek. I was able to hold my hands over bread and wine and with my brother priest consecrate bread and wine that became the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ and then offer him and elevate him to the Father. Uh, both the, the bread, the consecrated bread, and then the consecrated chalice of Jesus' blood. There he is, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And it felt as if there was a fulfillment of, again, what my purpose is, what my mission is, what my identity is, who I truly am. I have a deep Eucharistic heart. I love our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament. And after, towards the end of the Mass, when I went back to the presidential chair, I sat down and was just praying and reflecting on what had just happened. And I knew at that moment, I just knew as clearly as could be, there's absolutely nothing greater that I could do in my life possibly. I owned my own business before. I had a beautiful home life. 
I could have all kind of accomplishments and achievements, and I knew that there was absolutely nothing greater that I could do with my life whatsoever than what just took place at that altar, that beneath my unworthy hands, bread and wine were changed into the body, blood, soul, and divinity to feed Jesus Christ's bride, his church, who is now my bride, who is now my church, for me to lay down my life for, to love, and to give myself so that she may be flourishing in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that she might be one with the Lord God herself. And again, I just can't be any more grateful for this gift of a call that's been given to me. But I will simply mention here that these various sufferings had come to a peak and I resolved to put an end to these doubts of mine before my perpetual vows. Throughout my probation, I prayed for light for the priest to whom I was to open my soul to its depths. I asked God that he himself would help me and grant me the grace to be able to express even the most secret things that exist between me and him, and to be so disposed that whatever the priest would decide, I would accept as coming from Jesus himself. No matter what judgment he would pass on me, all I wanted was the truth and a decisive answer to certain questions. I put myself completely in God's hands, and all my soul desired was the truth. I could not go on living in doubt any longer, although in the depths of my soul I was so very sure that these things came from God that I would lay down my life for this. However, I placed the confessor's opinion above all, and I made up my mind to do as he thought best and to act according to the advice that he would give me. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us, and please be with us next week as our topic will be something we Marians have been doing for years, First Saturdays. Now, why is it so important, and what is it all about? Please be with us, and we'll explain. Until then, may Almighty God bless you, the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>